Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the Supreme Court's decision to release six years of Trump's tax returns to the House Ways and Means Committee after Trump's Treasury Secretary Mnuchin refused a statutory and subpoena request for Trump's tax returns. Joining us is Edward McCaffrey, the Robert C. Packard Trustee Chair in Law and a Professor of Law, Economics and Political Science at the University of Southern California. He's the author of Fair Not Flat, How to Make the Tax System Better and Simpler, and the founder of the People's Tax Page. With the new Republican House sure to shut down the investigation into the only president since Nixon who has refused to make his tax returns public, we will assess whether the returns can be expeditiously turned over to the Senate. Then, with tomorrow's Thanksgiving impacted by rising food prices and the scarcity of turkeys, we will examine the shameful extent of food insecurity in the world's richest country, and speak with Michael J. Wilson, Director of Maryland Hunger Solutions, an initiative of the Food Research and Action Center, where he leads Maryland's premier hunger advocacy, education, and outreach organization as it works to end hunger and improve the nutrition, health, economic security, and well-being of low-income families. Then finally, with the FBI under attack from Trump and his cult followers in Congress, We'll look into the history of the FBI, revealed in a new book on its founder and director from 1924 to 1972, J. Edgar Hoover. Joining us is Beverly Gage, a professor of 20th century American history at Yale University. She writes frequently for the New York Times, the Washington Post, the New York Times Magazine, and the New Yorker, among other publications, and is the author of The Day Wall Street Exploded, which examined the history of terrorism in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. We'll discuss her latest book, Just Out, G-Man, J. Edgar Hoover and the Making of the American Century. And before we go to our first guest, this program is completely independent without corporate sponsors and advertising relying entirely on your support. So we ask you to take a moment and visit backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or go to our nonprofit media foundation at publictruthmedia.org where you can keep us online and on the air on a growing number of stations for as little as $5 a month. Help sustain us into the future so that we can continue to provide breaking news analysis from the most knowledgeable guests at home and abroad. And we've made it easier for you to donate simply by credit card at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where your tax-deductible contributions make this program possible. And joining us now is Edward McCaffrey, who's the Robert C. Packard Trustee Chair in Law and a Professor of Law, Economics and Political Science at the University of Southern California. He is the author of Fair Not Flat, How to Make the Tax System Better and Simpler, and the founder of the People's Tax Page. Welcome to Background Briefing, Edward McCaffrey. Always nice to be here, Ian. Thanks for having me on. Well, thanks for joining us, Ed, and uh, I'm calling you because of the Supreme Court decision, a unanimous decision, surprisingly so, to allow the House Ways and Means Committee to get hold of six years of former President Trump's tax returns. They were held up by Stephen Mnuchin, the Secretary of the Treasury, who in May of 2019 refused a statutory and subpoena request for these tax returns, even though the law is very straightforward and very simple. So that in itself was pretty brazen, but there's nothing more brazen than Donald Trump. He's the only president since uh, Richard Nixon who has refused to make his tax returns public. Uh, absolutely right. And uh, as a congressman from New Jersey has pointed out, uh, the delay in getting the tax returns uh, to the House from their initial request, Neil's request, has gone on for longer than the American Civil War went on. So uh, quite quite colossal in, in the delay tactic. We know across the board, uh, Trump is a procrastinator. He's a delayer. He's a, he's a put off uh, Put off bad news for as long as possible. And he certainly did that here. One of the few things I think you mentioned that it was surprising the Supreme Court ruled this way. I don't think it was. And the real tell that it wasn't surprising that the Supreme Court ruled this way is that they ruled this way without opinion, without words, without dissent. Uh, the legal matter, the legal ability 
of the House to get the tax returns of anybody is pretty much unquestioned. Uh, And there was no doubt. I don't think any serious lawyer had a doubt that the House Ways and Means Committee, the House Congress, had a right to President, uh, President Trump's tax returns. So we go back in the litigation, and at the first round, there was a lower court judge who was a Trump appointee who said there's no doubt the House could get the returns, but it's not a good idea. Uh, and, and then a, a series of stays that went up to the appellate court. Uh, John Roberts continuing to stay the matter uh, earlier this month and days before the election. And then when they finally got to rule on the merits, there was there's no dissent. There's no reason to give uh, any opinion or for the Supreme Court to even write a sentence. Uh, It's so clear. So we get the tax returns. The House gets the tax returns. That is, I suppose, the good news for sense and sensibility and the rule of law. The bad news is that the House is too busy talking about impeaching the Secretary of Labor and investigating Hunter Biden. And come January 1st, they are not going to do anything terribly aggressive with the Trump tax returns that they are going to get within days now. So you mentioned Ed McCaffrey, the congressman from New Jersey on the House Ways and Means Committee, and I saw an interview with him and he was raising some interesting questions about what might be revealed in these tax returns since, obviously, again, Trump has been so resistant to having them turned over. And the Supreme Court's decision in Trump versus Massage, the 2020 decision that sided with the Congress in Trump's attempt to block the release of these records, Massage being his uh, accountants, and they're supposedly revealing Trump's relationship with Deutsche Bank. And this is what the congressman was talking about. That's possible that what will be revealed in uh, these tax returns, we know that Deutsche Bank was the, was the lender of last resorts, that Trump was blackballed from Wall Street. Nobody would give him a dime because of his multiple bankruptcies. However, Deutsche Bank became his lender of choice, and that's always been rather puzzling, why they would lend to a serial embezzler and squanderer and incompetent, and yet they did. So the congressman was suggesting that what the the tax returns might reveal is the extent to which Russian oligarchs, under the direction uh, or possibly Putin himself, is through these oligarchs, is continually lending Trump money, and that is explains the hold that Putin appears to have over Trump. Do you think that that's a, a realistic possibility? I, I don't think, Ian, it's terribly realistic. I, I, I think it's time, you know, to sort of step back from this story and, and maybe look at some of the, the bigger lessons. Um, because I think in a certain way that Trump has won, there, there's a Trump fatigue These stories go on for so long. Um, The stories about his tax returns, people have been looking for those tax returns since 2016 when he first runs for president and says he is going to disclose them. And then as the first president, the first presidential candidate of a major party since Richard Nixon, he actually refuses to release him. So a couple of things I think happen in that delay. Uh, One is there is fertile ground for the conspiracy theories to continue. And I think the press, at least, is eager for some smoking gun, you know, smoking guns sell. But I think the public is pretty much done with this story. Uh, We've gotten leaks of the tax returns. The, The New York Times has seen the tax returns and extensively reported on them. The Manhattan district attorney has access to tax returns. And we're seeing in the the Weisselberg, the, the litigation over Trump organization, we're seeing aggressive uh, and, and probably over the line of uh, tax practices, the, the CFO himself uh, getting compensation in the form of tuition payments for his grandchildren that weren't being reported as taxable income. So I think we know that there are questionable, at best, tax practices 
I'm I'm skeptical that we would see a smoking gun deeper than that, that we would really see, you know, the hands of Putin on these tax returns. And to me, I think one of the stories, I mean, if you go back to the statute that allows the House to get these tax returns, they allow them to get the tax returns in the context of the House doing its job, which is to oversee the uh, administration of the laws, to oversee, to be a check on the executive branch and to pass legislation. And the question here is, I don't think it's what Trump was doing. Trump was being very aggressive and probably crossing the line in a whole lot of tax positions. The question is, what was the IRS doing? What was the government doing? There's a, every year the presidential tax returns and the vice presidential tax returns get audited. What was going on in those audits? Was the was the IRS raising issues? Was somehow Trump or the or or his people answering those issues to the satisfaction of the IRS? Was somebody asleep at the switch? I think that's a bigger story in a way than than speculating about what we might find, the big dark secret we might find, which we've been speculating about. We've been doing that for several civil wars now. We've been going back to 2016 and saying, if only we can get the tax returns, we'll connect him to Russia, we'll connect him to dark money. I'm skeptical that that will happen. I don't think we'll learn much more than what the New York Times and other reporting has already told us, except that there are a lot of questions about how we got away with it for so long. Well, Ed McCaffrey, the, those questions can be answered, I think, by the fact that the uh, IRS commissioner is a friend of Trump's, isn't he? Is he st- and he's still in there. Well, I think he just, that's Chuck Reddick from, uh, yeah, Reddick, uh, yeah. I, I, I don't know if there's evidence that, that Chuck was a personal friend. I think there was some, uh, when Chuck got nominated, um, there was some evidence that he owned a condominium, I think, in a, in a Trump building in in Hawaii. But, uh, you know, Reddick certainly has not been uh, a a conspicuous opponent to Trump. But uh, IRS commissioners serve five year terms. So Reddick, the Trump appointee, continued into the Biden era and has been a very vocal supporter. And I think this is an interesting thing to connect with this story. The Inflation Reduction Act, one of its big potential revenue raisers is an increase in the IRS budget and it's specific much of that money an 80 billion dollar increase much of that money is supposed to be targeted to greater tax enforcement among the wealthy uh, and Reddick the current commissioner the outgoing commissioner has has been a vocal proponent of that uh, the Republicans have been vocal opponents of that the Republicans were hoping to gain control of the House and somehow gut the increase to the IRS enforcement budget. So that's an interesting story to, to stay on top of, that the Trump tax returns become a case study in how the wealthy and the well-advised, even when they're under the spotlight of, of the IRS, Trump gets audited every year. When he was president, he got audited every year. And where, what are the results of those audits? What, what's going on when the IRS really does take a look at wealthy people and some of their tax antics? Uh, and are the wealthy people somehow getting away at that level? I think that's an interesting story to keep an eye on. And can we use this as a case study, you know, for rich people tax avoidance? Well, Trump used to hang out with Ron Lauder in the 80s when it, there were, you know, streams of attractive young models passing through his doorways and even a, a private uh, club that <laughs> was raided. And Ron Lauder, is, his entire raison d'etre is to avoid playing taxes. He inherited billions from his mother, Estee Lauder, the founder of the Cosmetic Fortune, and he's a big player. I mean, he actually had a lot to do with why the Democrats lost four seats in uh, the recent election and, and by extension lost the House because he put up $11 million to help the Republicans. So do we know anything about that culture? Trump and Ron Lauder aren't the exceptions, right? 
A lot of rich people oh, spend the, every waking hour trying to figure out how not to pay taxes. Well, I, I don't think Trump spent too many hours on it. He just hired people who did it for him. But, but no, I think that's completely correct, Ian. There is that culture. I think you see it among real estate developers, New York City real estate developers. Uh, you know, what we're seeing in the Manhattan cases is Trump just using different valuations. If he's facing a property tax, his, his buildings are have a lot of deferred maintenance and are not worth anything. Uh, if he's trying to get a loan, uh, suddenly the very same building that he's telling a tax official uh, is is teetering on the brink of worthlessness suddenly becomes worth hundreds of millions of dollars. So those kinds of games and the, the you talked about the culture there with Louder and and Trump and other sort of high profile tax avoiders. Not a coincidence, by the way that a lot of the cryptocurrency stuff we're reading about now is taking place in the Bahamas, which which has very favorable taxes and doesn't subject you to U.S. taxes. So there is a culture up there of tax avoidance. And I think the Trump story suggests that uh, the, the IRS is not doing a very good job of, of catching that and clamping down on that, even when they audit those high income individuals. So why is that? I think we've got to watch the watchdogs a little bit and ask ourselves, is this new money we're putting into IRS enforcement? Are we going to be catching these problems? You know, the Trump stories there, there he's beyond the statute of limitations. If he's actually committed tax fraud or tax issues, the IRS is not going to be able to go back and, and get that money. So why, why did they miss it? And was there some hard or soft corruption in the missing of it? That That's, I think, a story. And that would certainly be of a little bit concern to Trump if it came out that he was getting favors in the auditing process. And Ed, you mentioned crypto uh, in terms of scams. I noticed, you know, at the World Cup, you know, how they have the uh, advertisements around the edge of the stadium. They're flashing mm-hmm. lights. <laughs> Crypto.com was one of the sponsors of the World Cup. So it's amazing to think that these financial scams continue. And obviously you're you're correct in alerting us to the disparity between the wealth protection industry of very, very clever, highly paid lawyers and accountants uh, and the IRS and the extent to which the $80 billion infusion will buy some talent that could match the aggressive nature of these members of the wealth protection industry. Yeah, absolutely right. I mean, it's hard for us to do these interviews in the Bahamas, but uh, maybe we should maybe we should be doing that. But absolutely right. The sense in which, you know, the rich get richer. Uh, and one of the things Trump did back to the tax return stories, I mean, he ran this clock out for years, uh, you know, question of who was paying for his legal fees as he attempts to block the release of, of his tax return records. Um, you would think that would be a personal expense, but you would kind of guess that some political action committee or some other Trump fund is, is paying for it. So uh, the rich can do all the stuff. They can, they can avoid the glare of publicity and in, in the shadows of secrecy, they can avoid taxes. So I, I, in in a way, I think Trump has sort of won in a sense that he runs out the clock to the point where nobody except a handful of, of media reporters who who like stories about Trump, nobody else really cares. I don't know if people are reading these tax stories and and thinking anything other than there but for the grace of God go I. If I had that much money, I would be doing what Trump does. Everybody does what Trump does. Um, and, and every rich person gets away with these kinds of loopholes. I, I think that's this, that's a story we have to pay attention to. And can the house, can the Congress, can the house get these materials to the Senate? Can we launch an investigation into the investigators? Um, we, we have a law in place that the president's tax returns are supposed to be audited every year. Uh, is that being done? Are those audits and those audits, you would think, would be also looking at conflicts of interest like the Deutsche Bank, like any connection to Russian oligarch money. 
those things should be happening. We shouldn't have a president who's committing tax fraud from the White House. Uh, right. That that's that's insane. And yet I don't think we can rule out that that's what we had. And indeed, just in closing, it is important that the House get those tax returns expeditiously to the Senate, uh, to Ron Wyden's committee, because there's no question that the Republicans in the House are going to shut down the Ways and Means Committee's uh, investigation. I thank you for joining us. Unless we can get it to Hunter Biden's laptop. If we can get (laughs) Trump's tax returns on the laptop, maybe the Republicans will look into it. But happy Thanksgiving to you, Ian, and and your listeners. And uh, we look forward to talking to you in the months and years ahead. Happy Thanksgiving to you as well. And again, I've been speaking with Ed McCaffrey, the Robert C. Packard Trustee Chair in Law and a Professor of Law, Economics and Political Science at the University of Southern California. He's the author of Fair Not Flat, How to Make the Tax System Better and Simpler, and the founder of the People's Tax Page. We're going to take a brief station break. We'll be back looking at tomorrow's Thanksgiving impacted by rising food prices and the scarcity of turkeys as we examine the shameful extent of food insecurity in the world's richest country. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Michael J. Wilson, who's Director of Maryland Hunger Solutions, an initiative of the Food Research and Action Center, where he leads Maryland's premier hunger advocacy, education, and outreach organization as it works to end hunger and improve the nutrition, health, economic security, and well-being of low-income families. Welcome to Background Briefing, Michael J. Wilson. Thank you, Ian. It's a pleasure to be with you. Well, thanks for joining us. And uh, just this day before Thanksgiving, you are obviously busy. And what we're learning is that there's always been food insecurity at Thanksgiving when most American families are gorging turkey and trimmings and side dishes and with their families, including the odd crazy uncle. Meanwhile, a number of Americans are working at food banks for the the least well-off, and it's a tough year, is it not, for food banks? Compared to last year, the price of potatoes is up 15%, pies are up 19%, and the big centerpiece of the table on Thanksgiving, turkeys, are up 17%. So how are you coping? So I... I think it's important to note that those prices are are up not, not just today and tomorrow for Thanksgiving, but a week ago and a week from now. And I think one of the things that we're conscious of is Thanksgiving is a holiday for family and for food and for festivities for lots of people. But there are lots of people who are challenged and who really are seeing food insecurity impact them. And that it seems more so when everyone else seems to be celebrating on Thanksgiving. But the truth is, those challenges happen year round. And we all know how we're all, you know, those of us who are are fortunate can be able to enjoy that time on Thanksgiving. Uh, But we also know that there are lots of our neighbors who can't. Well, it's always been a, a crying shame that in the world's richest country, there are millions of children that go to bed hungry. And I don't know the exact figure. Do you, Michael? So here's what I would say. I'd amend that because not only is it the richest country in the world, but Maryland in particular has the highest per capita income of any state in the wealthiest country in the world. And so that is even more pronounced that we have such wealth in the face of such poverty. And I don't have a particular number of kids going to bed hungry, but I do know that of the 900,000 or so students in public schools in Maryland, um, 382,000 of them qualify for free meals. And there's another about 39,000 
who qualify for what we call reduced price meals. So if we're only thinking about children, we are certainly looking at more than 400,000 kids who we know, we know because we've certified them, are food insecure. So Michael J. Wilson as director of Maryland Hunger Solutions, which is an initiative of the Food Research and Action Center. Where do you get your resources from? We know what you do with the, the resources, but where do they come from? So for us, we get contributions from, from individuals. We get grants from um, foundations. We even have a contract with the state um, for our SNAP outreach work, of which we are extremely proud. So anyone in the state of Maryland can call our toll-free number and get application assistance so that they can utilize SNAP benefits. And we know that SNAP is a powerful tool to address hunger. It's not perfect, but it's powerful, and that it really helps people who are eligible for benefits be able to take an EBT card and spend it at the grocery store, at a farmer's market, at a corner store, to really address their food needs. But of course, SNAP, the food stamp program, is always under constant assault from uh, the Republicans in the Congress. So SNAP is often misunderstood and attacked by people who really don't understand what it is. They have a notion in their head of what is a, and I will use your term, a food stamp recipient, even though we haven't called it food stamps for two decades. And there are some people who still think of it as the stamps that people use at grocery stores that most SNAP recipients, most are children, disabled, and seniors. And no one in their right mind thinks that those are the folks who should be going out and getting jobs. Most of the others are working. They are working, but they just don't have enough income to be able to make it, and therefore they are eligible for the SNAP program. And so while I I understand that there are politicians who want to make hay, no pun intended, off attacking a program that provides food and nutrition to low-income folks in, in the state and around the country, I also know that the facts belie their, their, um, the, what they believe to be true. And in terms of help to elderly people, how do you distribute food to elderly people, particularly shut-ins? So I will say there, there are, that we are different than a food bank um, in that we really work on systemic issues to try to change the system um, that impacts people. But people need food right away. We will refer them to the food bank, um, either the, you know a food, food bank that's near them or to a food pantry. Um, Meals on Wheels is another program um, that actually provides food to Um, elderly folks, particularly who may be shut in. But I don't want to ignore what SNAP can do. Um, Right before the pandemic, Maryland was one of the states that was able to use online SNAP. And so if you had SNAP in Maryland and you were a senior and you didn't want to go to the grocery store because of the pandemic or you were afraid to go, you could use your SNAP benefits to get online SNAP. And one of the things we were insistent about is that the stores that were doing that not charge delivery fees. And so there was another option for even shut-ins who were using SNAP. And in terms of your work with food banks, what are you hearing about food banks this Thanksgiving? Are they well stocked? Well, I would say that they they have some resources, but they have felt the brunt of the increased cost. Food banks spend a lot of money purchasing food because they can't depend merely on the things that you and I will give them when reaching in the back of our shelves for the cans of the things that we no longer want, that food banks really do need to purchase food. And so the cost for them has gone up. In addition, many of their food donations that they get from retailers and from others um, have have been reduced because they are they are selling more of that product rather than donating it. So what is the... Uh, <laughs> I've heard that in some cases they're substituting chicken for turkey. Is that being improvised this year? I don't know whether... I guess people have a special 
taste for turkey, right? Maybe, well, maybe that one. Yeah, yeah. I think tur- turkey is thought of as traditional in most uh, most American households. Uh, um, I think that the substitutions that you refer to, whether it's for chicken or for some people, it's ham. Uh, I think the substitutions are some of the things that we know are going on. Um, but you know, we we're living in a in an unprecedented time because of COVID, the way it's affected supply lines, the way it's affected cost, um, the way it affected in the last couple of years, even the ways we could gather together in in large groups or in large families. And so the hope is that, um, you know, we're we're, we're able to move forward in a a positive way and not have as much impact um, by by, by COVID and by the and by the virus. So just describe the work that you do then, since you seem to be at the kind of locus of all of these issues about food insecurity in terms of SNAP, food banks, distribution, alerting the public to what programs that they can have access to and how to make sure that they do have access to. Yeah, one of the things I always say is in our work, we never physically touch food. So if people need food right away or have an emergency need, we will refer them to people who can provide that. We really focus on systemic change because we know that the systems that impact people um, can be made better and can be made more efficient. So we help people get SNAP applications. Um, We help people with the WIC program. Um, You know, we have a program in this country which is targeted to women, to pregnant women, to their infants, and to their babies, and to their young children that need to be utilized as well. The WIC program, we all know, is very important in feeding the brains and the bodies of the youngest of us. Um, we also work with the school meals program. You know, we have hundreds of thousands of meals that get served in schools across the state of Maryland every day that there are hundreds of thousands of kids who were it not for school meals, school breakfast, school lunch, after school meals, might not have the access to food that they need. And so we want to make sure that school meals not only are healthy, but that there's pure, better access to school meals um, for students, no matter whether you're in Baltimore City or Montgomery County, or whether you're on the eastern shore of Maryland, that there really is a way to make sure, sure that Schools are not just places where kids learn, but the places where kids can be fed in a healthy, um, um, efficient way. And I think the other thing we're conscious of is, you know, what you raised earlier about people attacking the program. We believe very strongly in facts. And so we deal in data all the time. And we want to make sure that, that policymakers, that our partners, and that the public has access to real data, not just speculative data that they think is that, that is made up. And so, you know, when Maryland had the most SNAP recipients ever in our history of our state in the beginning of the pandemic, over 855,000 in a state population that's 6 million, it, it tells you the impact that not only the program was having for, for pe- people who needed the benefit, but the, it, but the breadth of the program in a state of our size. Um, and it's come down some, um, but it has not come all the way back down. And we know that's because it's also reflective of what really happens in the economy, that when it's needed, it expands. And when it's not needed as much, it begins to contract. And so we're seeing some of that contraction in Maryland. And we know that this is a program that really does respond to the economy. And in terms of WIC, how many people are on WIC? Because I don't know that too many people know about this program, and I'm assuming that there are pregnant women in need that may not know about it, and I guess that, that's your job, right, to inform them? Right. So there, there, are, there are a couple hundred thousand WIC recipients in the state of Maryland, but keep in mind that it's not just for the pregnant women, though pregnant women clearly are one of the targets. It's also for for women who have given birth because we want to make sure that they can remain healthy and that their babies and their infants and that their young children can also access these programs. And so WIC is, you know, one of those things that is not as well known, 
Um, but it really, really does a lot for um, making sure that we have healthy babies at the start of their life and that their moms can be healthy as well. Well, as a nation, again, the richest nation on the planet, where you know infant mortality rates in this country are uh, at third world levels. Well, they are especially bad for women of color, especially African-American women. And so those you know, infant mortality rates should not be that way. And it's one of the ways in which we know that food insecurity um, is closely related to poverty and it ha- it's closely related to um, the, those, um, those some same participants having access to not just food, but to health care, but to housing, but to transportation. And so while we know that food insecurity is a real issue and we work to address it, we know that it is a signal of the broader poverty that really exists in our country. Well, Michael J. Wilson, I thank you for joining us and I thank you for the work that you do, particularly at this time of Thanksgiving. Well, thank you and thanks for um, giving us an opportunity to talk about this. And I wish everyone a happy Thanksgiving um, with the best that they can. And uh, the same to you, Michael. And again, I've been speaking with Michael J. Wilson, the director of Maryland Hunger Solutions, an initiative of the Food Research and Action Center, where he leads Maryland's premier hunger, hunger advocacy, education and outreach organization as it works to end hunger and improve the nutrition, health, economic security and well-being of low-income families. We're going to take a brief station break and back looking into an FBI under attack from Trump and his cult followers and look into the history of the Bureau revealed in a new book, G-Man, J. Edgar Hoover, and the Making of the American Century. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Beverly Gage, a professor of 20th century American history at Yale University. She writes frequently for The New York Times, The Washington Post, The New York Times Magazine, and The New Yorker, among other publications, and is the author of The Day Wall Street Exploded, which examined the history of terrorism in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. And her latest book, Just Out, is G-Man, J. Edgar Hoover and the Making of the American Century. Welcome to Background Briefing, Beverly Gage. Thanks. It's great to be here. Well, thanks for joining us. And at the moment, of course, the FBI is being vilified uh, by none other than the former President Donald Trump, who targeted uh, the entire FBI counterintelligence section with the institutional knowledge on uh, Russian organized crime and possible connections between Trump and Putin. And Andy McCabe, Peter Strzok, Lisa Page, Bruce Orr were all purged. So given this odd situation where Trump's followers, are many in the Congress now, this new House, are calling for defunding the FBI, etc., and purging it, what do you think J. Edgar Hoover would have made of Donald Trump? Well, Hoover spent a lot of his career at the FBI. He was the director from 1924 to 1972, so almost half a century. He served under eight different presidents, and he spent a lot of his career trying to you know, negotiate, cajole, collaborate with, resist pressure from the White House in various ways. Um, so I think that he would not have appreciated <laughs> Donald Trump. Uh, he did not like anyone who criticized the FBI, and he was also pretty resistant to people who tried from positions of power to, quote unquote, politicize the FBI for better or worse. And I think it was a bit of both. Hoover felt that the FBI should be pretty autonomous, insulated from political pressure. That was partly because he wanted to be the one running things. But I think there were also some some real virtues to that as well. So what was the relationship then with 
Hoover and Roy Cohen, who in many ways was Trump's mentor, lawyer, legal advisor, eventually turned the portfolio over to Roger Stone. Obviously, Hoover played a role in the McCarthy area. And what's interesting about your book is that there's a much more nuanced view of McCarthy that Hoover had. He thought he was a, a loose cannon rather than a close associate and colleague. What is the relationship there with Roy Cohn? Hoover got to know Roy Cohn when Cohn was really just a very young man getting started in his career. So in the 1940s, uh, sort of doing these federal anti-communist cases. And then, of course, once Cohn went to work for McCarthy in the 50s. And I think at first Hoover saw Cohn as kind of a protege like himself. Hoover had been a a young man who rose very fast in a way that Cohn seemed to be doing. Um, And they shared a lot of friends. They shared a lot of a certain sensibility, particularly around communism. But Hoover also looked at Cohn in some of the ways that he looked at McCarthy, which is that we share a lot of these things, but our methods are pretty different. And so if you read FBI documents about Cohn, there is a lot of eye rolling. There's a lot of a sense that he, like McCarthy, is sort of a loose cannon, that he has a very loose relationship with the truth, um, and that he didn't have great political judgment, that he was doing all sorts of things that were going to you know, bring down criticism on the whole anti-communist cause. So they stayed friends for a long time. They shared information. They shared a lot of a sensibility. But Hoover, I think, was not 100 percent on the um, the kind of Cohn bandwagon in terms of uh, of his methods and the degrees to which Cohn was willing to go to kind of uh, go after his political enemies. So in terms of rumors, obviously, there have been lots of rumors about Jagger Hoover's sexuality and his relationship, lifelong relationship with his deputy, Clyde Tolson. And, of course, it's no secret that uh, Roy Cohn was uh, also homosexual. Is there a connection there? Because there were all kinds of rumors that when it first came out about Hoover, feather boas, you know, all that stuff. So, But you've really presented a much more nuanced, again, relationship between Hoover and Clyde Tolson. So describe the real relationship and the real sort of sexuality, if that's the right way to put it, of Hoover himself. Yeah, so it's a funny combination of a relationship that was very open and very public and very kind of socially affirmed, especially in Washington and New York and California, their own social circles, and then a relationship that was very hidden. Um, They certainly did not describe themselves as being uh, in a couple or being gay. Um, But I think as we look back on it, we can see different sorts of contours. So, you know, the basic story is that Hoover and Tolson uh, met in the 1920s. Tolson went to work at the Bureau in 1928. And from the early 1930s onward to Hoover's death in 1972, they really were a very tight, pretty open social couple. They went clubbing together. They went on vacations together. They went to family events and family funerals together, all of that. And so neither of them dated women. They were each other's primary relationship. And I think we can see it as as certainly a love relationship, though it's very hard to say if it was a sexual relationship or not. Uh, on the other hand, they were also vehemently uh, anti-gay and they both denied um, anything of that sort with each other. And Hoover would send FBI agents, if anyone was spreading a rumor about his sexuality, you know, he would send FBI agents to intimidate those people, uh, to track them down. And of course, he himself and the FBI as an institution were big participants in the Lavender Scare, which was the purge of gay people from the federal government in the 40s, 50s, and 60s. Um, so it's a complicated story. Uh, but one that's really interesting and I think tells us something a little bit different about, you know, what was hidden, what was visible, how people understood their lives at the time. And is there any truth to rumors that organized crime were able to blackmail him in any way? 
So this is a rumor that's been around for a long, long time. Uh, and there are lots of people who have been very willing to, uh, you know, to, to, to spread it and to talk about it. Uh, it's, it's the sort of thing where there isn't any documented evidence. Um, and so without documented evidence, I, as a historian, am, am sort of skeptical of these things. And I think there are lots of ways to explain Hoover's uh, views on organized crime without saying that he was being strong-armed by the mafia. So going back to um, the many presidents, what, four Republican presidents and four Democratic presidents that he served, he went after Martin Luther King in 1964, shortly after LBJ was elected. And LBJ, of course, is famous, again, uh, you're the historian, whether it's apocryphal or not, he had the option of, uh, because Hoover was approaching, he was 69 at the time, approaching the retirement age for civil servants of 70. And LBJ is famously supposed to have said, it's better to have Hoover inside the tent peeing out than outside the tent peeing in. Did that actually <laughs> pass LBJ's lips? It's hard to say, you know, it's something that one of his uh, staffers says, uh, you know, quoted. So that's where we get the, the quote from, and there's no reason to to believe that it uh, that it wasn't said, and it's definitely the sort of thing that London Johnson would say. Uh, on the other hand, he also just really genuinely seemed to like Hoover quite a lot. I mean, they had been neighbors on 30th place in Washington. So their houses were right down the street from each other. And beginning in the in the 40s, they had kind of developed a, a pretty close social as well as political relationship. Um, so when Johnson became vice president, uh, he also felt on the outs from the Kennedys. Hoover felt on the outs from the Kennedys. And they had really bonded over, the, you know, they would just sit around complaining about uh, Robert Kennedy in particular um, at some length, as far as we can tell. Um, so Johnson had lots of reasons to want to keep Hoover in power. And one of those is that Hoover was pretty cooperative with Johnson. It's one of the more interesting presidential relationships, I think, because, you know, in some cases, Johnson was sort of pushing Hoover to do things that were a little more progressive than Hoover might have wanted to do, particularly in civil rights. On the other hand, they would sit around, you know, talking about um, uh, going after Martin Luther King. Uh, Johnson certainly knew about that. Um, he was both amused by and to most degrees supportive of that. Um, and then there were just a whole bunch of political favors that Hoover ended up doing for Johnson um, that were really important. And when Johnson was leaving office, he sort of sat down with Richard Nixon and said, Dick, Edgar is the one man that you can really trust around Washington, and you should keep that in mind. Well, shortly after Martin Luther King won the Nobel Prize, Hoover uh, went public saying, I consider King to be the most notorious liar in the country. Now, you portray him as being a racist, having grown up in Washington, D.C., gone to a, well, he went to George Washington University, but he belonged to some, what, was it a racist kind of fraternity? But and the long and the short of it is that he was both a racist, but he also went after the KKK, based upon his feeling that they were lawless, right? I mean, how do you bridge that gap? Correct. That's one of the most fascinating moments to me is in 1964, which is really the peak of the FBI's campaign against Martin Luther King, which was both public, uh, that quote that you have from Hoover, and involved a lot of secret operations as well, harassment, disruption, surveillance, uh, overall really a, a very aggressive and uh, pretty outrageous campaign. At the same time, the FBI was also going after the Klan and, in fact, using many of the same techniques against the Klan that it was using against figures like King and other civil rights activists. Um, and I think Hoover saw himself really as the person who policed the boundaries of political legitimacy. And in his view, you know, a lot of left-wing groups up to and including a figure like King were illegitimate because they were challenging the existing social order, often through methods he didn't much like, protest, etc. 
On the other hand, uh, he also thought that violent groups like the Klan were illegitimate and in particular were a threat to federal law enforcement authority because, of course, the Klan uh, was often thumbing its nose at the FBI and at the federal government. Um, And so we have this moment, a really fascinating moment, where uh, Hoover is going after both the Klan and the civil rights movement at once. Well, of course, Hoover uh, must have been completely freaked out by the 60s, right? By the, the hippies and uh, the Vietnam War protests, etc. He cultivated a, an incredibly effective image, did he not, starting what in the, in the late 20s in terms of his media profile. And interestingly enough, I have a, a friend who was a, a cinematographer on a, a movie years ago called The uh, Thomas Crown Affair, and the director, Norman Jewison, was the FBI showed up and said, the director is not happy with the script because in the end, the bad guy gets away with it. And Norman Jewison, the director, said, wait a minute, I'm the director. <laughs> <laughs> then they finally had to explain that the director was J. Edgar Hoover. So he, he, he seemed to have an inordinate interest in public relations and in particular Hollywood and how the movies portrayed the FBI. Absolutely. Under Hoover, the FBI had a huge public relations apparatus, um, and that included uh, cooperation with Hollywood films in which, as you say, two things had to happen. One, uh, the FBI always had to win. And actually, the film codes of that era sort of reinforced this. You weren't supposed to be making films in which the criminal won out in the end. And FBI agents themselves had to be portrayed in this way that I think is still very familiar to all of us when we think of who an FBI agent is. You kind of picture the tall, fairly good-looking white guy in the suit and the hat and the shiny shoes. Um, And that was something that Hoover really built and cultivated. Um, So you saw it in Hollywood movies. You saw it in all of the kind of speeches and articles that he produced under his own byline with ghostwriters, books, uh, etc. throughout the years. And it was a huge part of uh, of what the FBI did was to kind of build up this image of Hoover. And as you say, it meant when the 1960s came along and styles changed, politics changed, um, in many ways, politics began to polarize in a major way. Hoover had been incredibly popular before that moment and really the embodiment of a kind of Washington consensus or an American way of life. Um, and that really fractured in the 1960s. Uh, and that's that's really the period from which we tend to remember him today. So just in the last couple of minutes, when James Comey uh, took over the uh, FBI, and of course he's famous for his maladroit press conference just days before the election in 2016, which may have swung the pendulum towards Donald Trump, because um, Comey was talking about the laptop. (laughs) We got Hunter Biden's laptop about to become nothing but national news for the next two years. Um, But in any case, this was a, a bogus dead end, but it did have an effect. But Comey, nevertheless, kept on his desk as a director of the FBI a one-page October 1963 memorandum from J. Edgar Hoover to Attorney General Robert Kennedy seeking permission to conduct the initial electronic surveillance of King. And he did that for what reason, Beverly? Well, I think that's supposed to be the great cautionary tale about FBI excesses um, during the Hoover era, uh, about the ways in which you know, overconfidence in your ability to judge who is on the right and the wrong side of history can be a real danger. Um, and a cautionary tale about what can happen when you're doing too much in secret um, and, uh, you know, about whether or not really to, to, to trust uh, judgments made that are going to constrain civil liberties, political rights, 
um, and free speech. It, it is worth noting that, in fact, Robert Kennedy signed that order. Um, so he tried to back away from having done that later in his career. But in fact, he knew a great deal about the FBI's surveillance of King. Um, so we have this cautionary tale, but I think it is also worth remembering that this wasn't just about Robert Kennedy and J. Edgar Hoover, um, but that we tend to think of King as this great saint and Hoover as this great villain, and I think in most ways quite rightly so. But it's important to remember that in the 1960s, uh, many Americans believed that J. Edgar Hoover was on the right side of this struggle and Martin Luther King was on the wrong side. And so I think we shouldn't be too complimentary to ourselves as a country in thinking, oh, if everyone had only known what the FBI was up to and what J. Edgar Hoover was doing, surely they would have been outraged and they would have objected uh, because people didn't know the details, but they knew an awful lot. Um, and, and in fact, history isn't as, as comforting as we would sometimes like it to be. But just in closing, what is the legacy, if any, of J. Edgar Hoover at the FBI today? Well, I think Hoover really built the institutional infrastructure that we still have at the FBI today, which is to say, on the one hand, it is a federal law enforcement agency building criminal cases against people who violate federal laws. And on the other hand, it is our domestic intelligence service, um, you know, here to kind of keep tabs on various groups, uh, individuals, organizations uh, within the United States. And there's some tension between those two duties uh, and they didn't have to go together, but they did under Hoover and they do now. And I think Hoover also established a couple of the key political traditions of the FBI that are still around. On the one hand, I think the FBI still has a pretty conservative internal culture to it, um, which was certainly something that Hoover established. And on the other hand, and I think this might be the most forgotten part of Hoover's legacy, you know, a real commitment to being part of the sort of professional civil service that stands outside of politics that is you know, intended to be devoted to the laws and to the facts and to a form of career government service that a figure like Donald Trump has attacked endlessly, not only at the FBI, but elsewhere in the government, but I think really still is is a very powerful strain of, uh, of the FBI's mission as well as its culture. Well, indeed, uh, the FBI is now investigating a former president, who is a wannabe mob boss and possibly even a traitor. So it could be more appropriate and timely, your book. And I thank you for joining us, Beverly Gage. Thanks so much, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with Beverly Gage, who's a professor of 20th century American history at Yale University. She writes frequently for the New York Times, Washington Post, the New York Times Magazine, and the New Yorker, among other publications, and is the author of The Day Wall Street Exploded, which examined the history of terrorism in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. And her latest book just out is G-Man, J. Edgar Hoover and the Making of the American Century. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org, where you will find our nonprofit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared by half past nine Who will ever know how much she loved them 